Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Culture, our weekly look at the things that really matter. And we are taking a deep dive into Raymond Chandler, looking at the highlights of his fantastic career, where he really defined a new way of America, talking about itself. And a bit like Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, he admired Scott Fitzgerald, Chandler invented a new way of speaking English, American English rather than English English. He did it through the detective story, but you can say this was being done more broadly. And this is when culturally the United States really began to the British, uh, despite the fantastic work of people like Graham Greene. Uh, the, the American writers took over control of the English language, and stylistically, above all, Raymond Chandler helped do this. Last week, we looked at uh, the beginning of Chandler, the incredibly fun, if totally incoherent, The Big Sleep, where things got so bad that when they made the movie version, the classic Bogart-McCall version of The Big Sleep, uh, William Faulkner, who was working on the screenplay, had to call up a fairly drunken Raymond Chandler and ask him who killed the chauffeur, and, and Chandler had to honestly say he wasn't sure. That's how Byzantine the plot get and the got. And the way to deal with Chandler is to let that go. Uh, suspend your disbelief and worry about the things that he cared about. And what he cared about, above all, was style, was the way of speaking, was a hard-boiled, tough, more moving, muscular version of the English language that was funny, cynical, but wore its feelings on its heart at the same time with an idealism beneath the cynicism. And this, of course, was embodied in Chandler's hero through these stories, the great detective Philip Marlowe, who seems a tough guy on the surface, but beneath it, one thinks of himself as a knight's errant. That's certainly what he thinks. He's a knight working his way through the chaos of California and what's going on just after um, and during World War II. Um, Chandler, having really perfected the art through the great fun of inventing this new language in the big sleep, which is still a rush to the head. The language is so modern, uh, so muscular, so American, uh, really symbolizing, again, the takeover of America from England of literature. Uh, it's great fun, if incoherent. But one, now we come to the really great novels that we're going to look at that follow. And there are three in particular, that we're going to look at with Chandler before we probably move on, I think, to Graham Greene, who was the only real English writer taking up the cudgel to try to save English English rather than American English as the language of literature in the 20th century. Uh, but before getting there, to really look at the highlights, we're going to look at Farewell, My Lovely Today, the great 1940 novel of the classic by Chandler, now fully in command of what he's doing. Uh, we're going to then look at The Little Sister, which is my personal favorite. I just, I think uh, the characterizations are fantastic. And then uh, The Long Goodbye, which are really the three after the big sleep that that merit uh, reading. For those of you who are reading along with us, though, all six of the first Chandler novels, and here I think the critics are right, all six of the first novels are entirely worth reading. The only one that probably isn't is the seventh playback. At this point, Chandler is crippled by alcoholism, the death of his wife, having numerous affairs, and has massive writer's block. It begins to affect the writing. And speaking as a writer who's had a controversial, if complicated, life, um, you can work through an awful lot of personal difficulties with your writing, but there reaches a point where all the other things get in the way unless you have a happy, stable life, which thank God I do now. 
um, and have for the last seven or so years I've been with Sarah. But it can get in the way. And for Chandler, by the time he gets to playback, things get on top of him, the alcoholism, the numerous affairs, the depression. And this leads to writer's block. And playback is, is far less um, ornate, Byzantine. You don't have the lovely, complicated plot structure. Uh, the, the characterizations are more straightforward, less beguiling, less... Uh, there's less depth to them. It's still a fun read. I read all seven of these before talking to our community. I still enjoyed the read, but it's nowhere near as good as, as the complexity we're going to look at with Farewell, My Lovely, The, the Little Sister, and The Long Goodbye, um, which I think uh, really deserve you know mentioning on their own Beyond the Big Sleep. So this is the second Marlowe novel of the seven. Again, he's now on top of it. He realizes what he's discovered. Uh, this has been, again, Chandler is so filmic that there have been three different versions on the screen of Farewell, My Lovely. Again, for those of you reading along, that's where we're going. But do look at the filmic versions of some of these no um, novels. I mean, The Big Sleep, you have to say the Bogart-Bacall version. I think it's 1946. Howard Hawks is totally worth watching. In this case, the version that I like best of the three of Farewell, My Lovely, is probably Robert Mitchum, who was really born to play um, Marlowe. I mean, he's smart, he's tough, there's a romanticism and a cynicism to him, and he's laconic, and yet there are deep wells of, of, of depth to him. And I think, you know, really, Mitchum was born to be Philip Marlowe, and the Farewell, My Lovely version from the mid-'70s with uh, the luminescent Charlotte Rampling. My goodness, I mean, you still your jaw drops when you see her. Um, I think that version, if you're keeping up in reading and watching, if it's Bogart Begall for The Big Sleeve, let's say it's Mitchum and Rampling for Farewell, My Lovely, which I think was 1975. But there have been three different versions for the screen. Um, Chandler started on this in June to December, the second half of 1939, but then in his kind of chaotic, turbulent way, he threw the whole thing out. He wasn't happy with it. Started over and then rather quickly finished the new version of the novel by spring 1940. So this is coming out just after The Big Sleep. And he's building with confidence on what he's done. As happened with The Big Sleep and so often with Chandler is he cannibalizes short stories, mashes them together to come up with a new coherent plot. And we would say nowadays that's working on your back catalog, which is something that I do sometimes when you have political risk work that's been like a fine wine aged well. You know, you keep going. You go back and say, how can I build on this? Or this was interesting, or this was interesting but wrong, or this was interesting but right, more right than I knew at the time. You can, If you have a living body of work, you can constantly go back and build on it. And Chandler does that in general, but uh, really Farewell, My Lovely was three of these former short stories uh, from the 1930s that he puts together, cannibalizing to make Farewell, My Lovely. Um, as always with Chandler, it's the style that matters in the characterization, not the plot. The wording, the phrasing, the Americanness of the language, the muscular action verb oriented language, not passive in the least. Uh, the opposite of an Agatha Christie hothouse detective story, which is so passive in language. We'll probably get to Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers because I love them at some point. But this is the opposite in language, muscular American prose. And again, 
Chandler, above all, beyond the style, is fascinated by characterization and do the characters behave as they would, the character's destiny. He goes back to the Stoic philosopher Heraclitus and his character destiny, do they behave as these characters really ought to? And that's what fascinates Chandler and why his work is so fascinating. Again, the plot is secondary. And as with the first one, A Farewell, My Lovely is nothing if not Byzantine. But it centers on a couple big themes, corruption, social decay, cynicism, and fatalism, that Marlowe realizes that although he has a moral code in, in an amoral society, because society is bigger than him, that leads you to be both romantic and cynical and fatalistic at the same time. Again, Marlowe brings these themes out because of his characterization. At base, this is a man who loves music, a man who loves chess, a tough guy, but a college-educated tough guy who has all this background. And so he realizes that he can tip the scales of justice, but only at the edges, that society doesn't care about you. It doesn't hate you, but it doesn't love you. It's amoral, not immoral, but it's certainly not moral, certainly not on your side. And as one man, even one talented, determined knight, he lives as knights did in chaos. There isn't large social structures. That's why knights came into their own. And Marlowe fits into this as the knight of California is the way to look at him. He's in this larger miasma of corruption, of social decay, of reinvention. And all he can do is tip the scales at the edges, which he does, and often at great personal cost. But he'll do that. But he knows that he can be doomed to fail. And even when he succeeds, it's only at the edges. And so you get this romantic cynicism, which is uniquely American, coming out of the characterization of Philip Marlowe. And I think that's an important point to make. Uh, Farewell, My Lovely is set in Bay City, which is an area that Marlowe returns to again and again. And Bay City was really Santa Monica. And Santa Monica had a, had a reputation for corruption during the Great Depression that Chandler's building on, but that we've probably lost now that we don't see that. Whereas at the time, the reader would have said, ah, Santa Monica, corruption. And so Marlowe's wading into the deep waters of cesspools of corruption as he goes through the story. And that, that's an important touchstone as you read Farewell, My Lovely. I don't want to spoil the plot. I mean, this is always the difficulty of talking about writers. You don't want to ruin the story, particularly when it's a detective story. But this story centers around Marlowe meets... Um, he's out doing a boring missing persons case, which he's not very interested in. And while doing so, he goes to a joint, uh, a, a, an old place to hang out, uh, a speakeasy where there's liquor being served that is now run by African-Americans. It's a black establishment. And at the time, there's segregated establishments. And Marlowe makes that clear. And one of the interesting things about Chandler is for all the language is that in these stories, uh, he speaks highly of Hispanics, Mexicans. He speaks highly of some blacks in the stories. This is way ahead of his time. And although most of the language, the policemen particularly, there's a casual racism that pervades the stories, which was of its time. And it suits the story and, and is the world that they lived in. I don't think we should excise history. I think we should study and understand it. And one of the detectives, when, when, when he visits what's known as a Negro establishment at the time, this black establishment, and someone's killed there, and the police make it very clear they don't particularly care if a black guy's killed in one of these establishments. And Marlowe's somewhat annoyed by this. Again, he's a cut above the world that he's living in, and he's a, he's a knight of California. 
But while visiting this establishment looking for his case, he meets Marlowe meets Moose Malloy, who's a very interesting Marlowe character. Uh, again, in line with Marlowe and why he identifies with him is Moose isn't very bright. He's a huge man falling out of his loud suit. He's gigantic. He's six foot three or four or five there and well over 200 pounds. And he's been the muscle when this old establishment used to be a white establishment. And he was the bouncer who came to see his girlfriend who performed on stage and various legal and illegal activities at the time. And Moose Malloy has been in jail and has gotten out and he's come back in a very straightforward, romantic way to find his girlfriend, Velma. And that's all that he cares about. If anybody gets in his way, as people do at the establishment, which is now because of segregation and African-American establishment, he kills a guy who doesn't take him seriously as to what happened to his Velma. Well, Marlowe is touched by Malloy uh, being a con, but again, this romantic, just out of prison, um, both of them exemplifying this kind of romantic cynicism. And so he agrees uh, under some physical pressure from Malloy, but also because he sees in him a kindred spirit. He agrees to help Moose find his Velma. And the rest of the story, then we get into corrupt cops. Uh, we get into social climbing people trying to forget their past. And, and this is very, this echoes F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, the notion that Americans think that they can reinvent their past. And like Fitzgerald, Chandler thinks that this is a very naive, if very American view, that the past doesn't matter, it's only the present, and that the past will never come knocking on your door. And for Velma, as she's done some social climbing since Moose has been in jail, uh, the last thing she wants is to meet Moose, who is dead set on finding and reclaiming her as a knight. She's moved on from this to a much higher social strata and wants nothing more than to forget her dance hall days. And Marlowe has to wade into this nouveau riche society. He has to wade into rich people wanting to ignore their past, much as Scott Fitzgerald did with The Great Gatsby. Very similarly, Chandler does with Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, people who want to forget their past and act like the world began this morning. And Americans do this. But as was true with Scott Fitzgerald in The Green Light, you never can escape your past entirely, nor can Velma. And so Marlowe wades through corrupt cops in Bay City, nouveau riche posers, and people desperate to leave their past behind. And of course, in the end, for both Scott Fitzgerald and Chandler, you can't. And tragedy ensues. But Velma can't escape her past, and so here fatalism does play a role. And Marlowe, in the end, helps tip the scales in favor of Moose Malloy. And one of the really interesting things about Chandler's stories is that the good guys, in quotes, and the bad guys are all shades of gray. That, that like in the feudal era, nobody is, it's not black and white, it's at best shades of gray. They're less bad people, they're bad people, and then they're downright psychotic people. And the only one in any of these stories who really is generally good for all his foibles, and he certainly has them, Marlowe is nothing like Chandler, if not a functioning alcoholic. If you keep track of what he drank, it would put anybody on the floor, as it did Chandler. I assume he's looking at his own drinking totals when it, when he comes to Philip Marlowe. But Marlowe, for all his alcoholism, all that he has no money, is a knight of California. His heart is broadly in the right place. And although he knows he can't change the world, he wants to tip things in favor of decency and what's right at the edges where he can. And indeed, in Farewell, My Lovely, this is an example of what would be a qualified success 
for for Marlowe because he gets justice for Moose and unveils what happens to Velma, even though it's at great cost. And he has to wade through the miasma of Bay City police corruption, posers, nouveau riche people, desperate to forget their past, where Marlowe is on the side of truth, justice, and the American way, and pays a price. He gets thumped, uh, knocked out, beaten up, threatened by policemen, guns put in his face. I mean, what Chandler does so well is make, make it clear there's a price for being good. I think of Hugh Thompson, the pilot during My Lai, the My Lai atrocities in Vietnam, who said, and, and famously was the only one in My Lai who did anything right. Um, and it took 30 years later for the president to acknowledge what he did right. And Thompson said something to the effect of that if you do the right thing expecting a reward, you may be waiting a very long time. And Thompson, who was a genuine American hero for trying to help as many people as he could on the ground during the My Lai massacre, um, gets this right. And, and Marlowe would absolutely subscribe to, subscribe to this Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald creed that you do the right thing because it's the right thing and you let the chips fall where they may. But that could mean that you pay a tremendous price for doing what's right, not be rewarded for doing it. But if you're going to be a man, if you're going to be a man in a modern Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, Chandler way, you have to be a man by doing what's right. You have to pay a price, be willing to pay a price that's terrible and not care. I mean, the only thing I can compare to this in my own life was the Iraq war. When I knew that if I went against the Iraq war, again, it's back, back to romantic cynicism. I knew the United States was still going to go to war. I knew the war would still fail. I knew all the things I was saying, that, that Iraq would be destroyed, that we would make Iran relatively stronger, that there would be a radical movement. Nobody knew ISIS would form, but there'd be a radical Islamic movement to come out of the formerly ruling Sunnis in the country, uh, that a quarter million Iraqis would die, that thousands of Americans would die, and it would cost roughly a trillion dollars. I said all that. I knew all that. I knew I wouldn't stop it, that my finger on the scale wouldn't change it, but I put my finger on the scale anyway, and the equivalent of having guns stuck in my face and being beaten up was I lost an inside track to be Secretary of State at a rather early age, or certainly a high-ranking official, as I was the largest, I, I was the senior foreign policy analyst at the largest think tank in the world. I mean, that's getting beaten up. And I would have to start my life over. And I did it. And I think that's why I'm drawn to Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and, and Chandler, that you do it because it's right. You don't do it. Not now when I go to Washington, everyone talks about how wonderful I am. It took Hugh Thompson over Meli a couple decades. It took me uh, the better part of 15 to 20 years for the, for the karmic wheel to change. But none of that matters. What matters is doing the right thing. And that's why these stories are so enjoyable. For all the labyrinthine maze that, that, that uh, Chandler gleefully takes you through, the center point is, is Philip Marlowe, who's trying to do the right thing, who's going to pay a price for it. But he's the moral center of these stories, where otherwise there isn't a lot of morality. And it's just merely sifting through the least bad option. I'm strongly drawn from my own biography to these stories. Hemingway, uh, we've talked about before, and I think we will again for my friend Daryl and others. We'll probably go through Hemingway book by book when we finish with Chandler. I think that would probably be a good idea. Uh, but these stories draw us because it provides you a way to be a man in the modern era, to do the right thing, regardless of the cost, to know that, it that what you do does matter, that at the edges you can change things, but you have to be humble 
about that impact, but that doesn't mean that things aren't worth doing. In the end, the only thing worth doing is doing the right thing, whatever the fall. And Farewell, My Lovely is a great example of that. And so I commend it to you. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this, The Culture, on Raymond Chandler's classic Farewell, My Lovely, with Chandler now firmly in control of things and moving ahead. Uh, next week, we'll have a look at The Culture. We'll do The Little Sister and then end with him going through The Long Goodbye, probably his best novel. Um, in return, after that, again, I think we'll move on to other writers who draw me in from this kind of Chandler-esque sense of morality. Uh, after this, I think we'll probably go through Hemingway. Uh, story by story, or at least the major novels and the short stories that move me is probably what we'll do next, and then maybe on to Graham Greene. Do look out this Thursday uh, for our next serialization of my new book, which is available for pre-order on Amazon, both in the UK and the US. Uh, the Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. We're trying to defeat the mighty algorithm of Amazon, so please do pre-order and please do so now. That would be very, very helpful in our community to get those orders in ahead of time. It gets our book out to a much wider market, which is the whole point, is to make real political change. Back to uh, Philip Marlowe, to really change the world and to do this, I need your help. It's the best thing I've ever written, and I think it can indeed change the Republican Party through that America and then the world. So please do pre-order today. I hope you enjoyed this culture, and on we go to my, my favorite, in my heart at least, if not my head, Raymond Chandler novel, The Little Sister.